Hey guys, welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Tom LeHue, uh, where we talk about all kinds of cool things about the Enneagram, trying to understand ourselves better, the people that we love, the people we're trying to get along with. Um, in the description below is a link to my website, TomLeHue.com, where you can book Enneagram coaching appointments for yourself or for your marriage. Um, and also on the website is a uh, um, all the certificate programs are listed. So if you're interested in becoming an Enneagram coach, we're just trying to understand how to use the Enneagram better uh, to help yourself or others. Um, I do offer several different uh, coaching programs and uh, certificate programs. They are on Zoom. And uh, if you can't make the actual live meeting, you can watch the recorded uh, broadcast. You don't have to miss anything. So check out those certificate programs. Also, thanks to my patrons. I really appreciate your continued support and your love for the channel. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Well, um, we're talking about uh, the Harmony Groups, or also um, we might call them the, um, the Harmony Triads. And hopefully if we have time, we'll talk about the dominant effect groups as well. Um, this information is coming from the Sacred Enneagram. Um, as I've been working on the certificate program for Enneagram in the Christian Life, uh, which uh, I would love for you to, to check out, um, I've been looking heavily at both of these two books. These have been guiding my thinking and uh, will guide the class, will be required for the class or recommended for the class. And so these have been my companions. You can see how bent that book is uh, because, you know, I've been reading it, reading it, studying it. And uh, I've already read The Sacred Enneagram a long time ago, but now I'm going back through and re-highlighting um, and trying to really unpack it and understand it. And one of the things that is mentioned in here, as as well in some of these other books, is the harmony triads or the dominant effect triads, both of those. Um, and I want to talk about those a little bit today. And um, maybe you've heard all of this before, but a lot of people haven't. A lot of people don't dig this deep into the Enneagram to, to figure out or learn about all of these groupings. You know, there's a lot of different groupings that you will discover that uh, the types are in. For example, you know, we all know the assertive, the compliant, and the withdrawn stances, right? I think we get that. Those three, you know, the five, four, and the nine are all in the withdrawn, uh, meaning they got to move away from people to regain their energy. The compliant stances are the one, two, and six. They're all in a triangle saying, how do I need to show up today? You know, what do I need to comply my energy to? Um, and the aggressive or the assertive stance of seven, eight, and three, all I'm waking up to go after what I want to go after. You can get on board, but don't get in my way. We all kind of know, maybe are familiar with at least that, but there's a lot more of these kinds of groupings that uh, we find when we study the Enneagram. Um, and I want to talk about those today, the harmony triads, and then the subcategory under that, the dominant effect groups, okay? So if you want to read more about that, you can, you know, of course, pick up the book. I would highly recommend The Sacred Enneagram. Okay, so the harmony triads, um, they're broken up into three groups of three, and the first group are called the relationalist, um, and this is the two, the five, and the eight, the second group is the pragmatist, that's the three, the six, and the nine, and then finally the idealists, which are one, four, and seven. 
Okay, so let's go back to the relationists. 2, 5, and 8. Um, these three types, 2s, 5s, and 8s, are all moving in relationships in a certain way. Okay, so they're moving in relationships in a certain way. Three distinct moves in their relationships. They relate to their world through their connections. Twos, I mean, that seems obvious. It doesn't seem obvious for fives or maybe eights, but it does for twos. You know, we do think of twos as being kind of the most relationally conscious or the most um, obvious in moving, what, toward people to take care of them, moving toward people uh, to interact with them. Sometimes maybe finding their worth and value in those relationships a little too strong. Uh, but twos are moving toward people to meet other people's needs. Of course, twos want to be loved. They want to be cared about. They would really like to be the center of their dominant person's life or their world. Uh, but, you know, sometimes they fear that that love may not be reciprocated or they fear that that love may be rejected. So they might sort of digress into just meeting people's needs uh, or meeting uh, important people's needs. So twos are relational in that they relate to the world by moving toward people to meet needs. Okay, let's just leave it there and then we'll go a little deeper in a minute. Fives are moving in relationships as well, but not really moving toward pe people. They're, they tend to move away from people. Moving away from people... To, now, that isn't always a bad thing. You might think, oh, well, that's terrible. They're withdrawing and moving away from people. That's not nice, or that's not friendly, or that's not kind. Well, you know, there can be an advantage to this. When you can move away from people emotionally and detach from people, you sometimes are given a better vantage point to resolving conflict or solving people's problems. So you could say it like this. They move away from people... Uh, to deliver reason and perspective to people. So that can be a good thing. If you're not necessarily needing all of this attention from people and needing to be liked by people and needing to interact with people, um, you might be in a better position to kind of look at things objectively and to be able to do what I call bottom lining problems. you got a relationship problem between two people and this one feels very strongly and passionately this way and this one feels very strongly and passionately this way. Who's going to be able to sort this out? Of course, nines make good mediators, but fives are really good at like solving these relational dynamics and seeing the objective problem and sort of filtering out all of the emotional stuff. Not that fives don't have emotions. I'm not saying that. Okay. All right. So fives move away from people to deliver reason and perspective. All right. Eights move with people uh, to assert what is required. Okay. So they're moving with people. And I would say like they tend to be like leading people. They tend to be like moving people in directions. Like, guys, get behind me. We're going to take the hill. Let's storm the hill. So the eight is moving with them. Uh, like, join forces together and we will overcome this obstacle. We will overcome this challenge. Come on, gang. Let's all work together. Let's move forward and we will see progress. So twos are moving toward people to meet their needs. Fives are moving away from people to keep their distance and to be more objective and to be able to uh, be more rational and reasoned uh, and get an offer perspective. Eights are moving with people to lead them, to challenge them, to, gu to, to guide them. Okay, that's the relationists. This is the harmony 
um, triads. The first one is the relationists, two, five, and eight. Okay, let's talk about the pragmatists. The pragmatists are the people in the centers of those of those triads, three, six, and nine. Okay, so three, six, and nine are the pragmatists, and we might say it like this: they are seeking their place in the world. They're seeking their place in relationships. They're trying to relate to the world primarily through what works for them. Okay, so they're being pragmatic. Their stance is pragmatic. Threes are seeking practical, a practical and sustaining role in the world. Like, what's my job? Who, what, what role do I serve? Let me do that to the best of my ability. So I'm going to be a lawyer, then I'm going to be the best lawyer. I'm going to be a teacher, then I'm going to be the most you know, compelling teacher, the most productive teacher. What is the role that I am filling? Let me fill that role and let me attach myself pragmatically to that role. Sixes, you could say, are seeking assurance and a safe and secure existence in the world. Sixes are seeking a, uh, to assure a safe and secure existence in the world. Nines are seeking comfortable positions or place in the world. Um, what is my job? Okay, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my job. And status quo. I just maintain that plodding kind of mentality. I show up, I do what I'm expected to do, and um, I'm comfortable in this position. I like this position. I get along with the people in this position. I'm comfortable. Okay, so three, six, and nine are attaching themselves to what's working for them or what's providing them with their sense of role for threes, security for sixes, and comfort for nines. Okay, the next group in the harmony triads are the idealists, and that's ones, fours, and sevens. The idealists. The idealists are kind of relating to the world like this could be better. This should be better. There's a more better way that the world could be operating. Uh, a vision of the way the world could be in order for life and for my spirit to thrive. So they tend to relate to the world through their dreams or their imagination or their planning, um, or their idea or vision of a better world. Ones are seeking a perfect world according to their internal standards, the way things ought to be. Things should be moving toward the direction of the way my internal direction says they should. So things could be better. The, again, the dishwasher could be loaded more accurately. The towels could be folded straighter. Fours I think about the little carpet lines when you vacuum. Get those carpet lines, those swirls, just perfect. Fours are seeking the ultimate ideal world in which nothing of importance or substance is missing. Let me say that again. Fours are seeking an ultimate and ideal world and relationships in which nothing of importance or substance is missing. Sevens are seeking the ideal positive world free of suffering and pain uh, by going to something new and positive when frustration occurs. So ones are seeking an ideal world that meets their perfect standards, it's rigid, it fits their criteria of what good and what should be done. Fours are seeking a 
a ultimate experience or an ultimate world that lives up to their expectations, that is not missing anything, um, that is full of substance and importance. And sevens are seeking a world free of pain, free of suffering, free of problems, free of gloomy gray clouds. Um, and when they experience those things, you might see them run off toward what is new or what is fun or what will promise a brighter uh, existence. So the three harmony triads are the relationists, the pragmatists, and the idealists. Okay, now let's go one level deeper. Beneath the harmony, and you can imagine, before we go deeper, you can imagine that all of these truths about us certainly affect the way we interact with the world. They affect the way we re, uh, relate to others in relationships. If you are in a relationship with an idealist, a one, four, or a seven, for example, just keep in mind that they're always kind of thinking, you know, this could be better. This could be better. Our day could be better. Our relationship could be better. Our environment could be better. This vacation could be better. So there's a sense in which idealists are kind of ruining their own experience. There's like a roommate in their head that just keeps telling them things aren't quite living up to the way they ought to be. Now, recognize if you're in a relationship with that, you're going to have to make certain compensations to just be understanding of that as they seek to um, work through their own idealism and to come to grips that maybe things are okay the way they are. If you're in a relationship with, um, you know, a pragmatist, for example, a three, six, or a nine, um, it might be helpful for you to understand that they're, they often move toward what works or what's working for them environment. You might say, well, that's not right. That's not, that's not the way it should be, or that's not, that's not, um, you know, appropriate, um, or that's not fun, or that's not exciting, they're going to tend to move towards what's working. And the relationists are going to move to, toward people to meet their needs, away from people to secure their own needs, um, or eights with people in order to lead or guide them and to resist feeling controlled by them. So just understand that to some degree, these harmony triads that we are in or the people that we love are in are certainly going to affect the way we relate to the world around us. Now, let's go to the dominant effect groups. Dominant effect. What this is referring to is the dominant people in our life when we were children growing up, they have an effect on us that kind of gives us the why as to why we are in the harmony group that we are in. Why am I a seven? Or why are you a six? And again, I don't think there's any real one clear answer for this. I don't know that anybody could really know for sure whether you're born this way, whether you become this way. But I think that this is kind of an interesting, if we don't make too much out of this, I think it can be interesting. I don't think I caused my kids to become the types they are. I don't think my parents caused me. It just, it's what we call confirmation bias. We tend to see the world through the lens of our Enneagram type. And so we can look back and we can see these things whether they existed in reality or not, that is something to debate and argue about. But it is kind of the way we, the message that we heard, let's say it that way. Our confirmation bias fills in the gaps and it's a message that we hear. It's a message that may or may not have been intended to be communicated to us, but it's kind of the, the lesson that we learned and the message that we heard. So 
the caregivers in our life, and let's imagine that we had two of them, that we had a protective caregiver and a nurturing caregiver, okay? So kind of the the simple way to say this is a dad and a mom, okay? The protective caregiver, the dad, and the nurturing caregiver, the mom. Now, before you leave a bunch of comments, I know and I get it that sometimes these roles aren't so traditional. Sometimes it's not this cut and dry. Maybe in your home, mom was the protector and dad was the nurturer. I get it. I'm just saying according to traditional ways of thinking, think of the protective caregiver as being the dad, the nurturing caregiver as the mom. That'll help you so much in understanding what this dominant effect group thing is talking about. Okay, so we all relate as young people in some way, positive or negative, even if they were absent, even if you didn't have a protective caregiver in your life, or that role of dad or strong father figure in your life, that's still going to affect uh, how you grow up, okay? So we all grow up hearing some kind of message that is communicated to us, seeing some kind of message communicated to us, whether it was intended or not. We have this confirmation bias toward those caregivers of what we think they were trying to communicate to us, or how we perceived their interactions with us. And the thinking is that these interactions and the way we related to them kind of helps lock in that Enneagram type, or we could say we tend to see it because of our Enneagram type. Whichever way you look at it, the chicken or the egg, let's just move on. (laughs) I'm not a five. I visit it, but I'm I'm not a five. Okay, so dominant effect groups. This refers to the why we tend to relate to the world in the way that we do. Why are we in the harmony group that we are in? (coughs) The way we relate to the dominant family relationships, the nurturing caregiver, mom, and the protective caregiver, dad. Okay, the rejection types, twos, fives, and eights. Now, in the harmony group, they were called the relationists, right? In this group, they're called the rejection types. It's the same three types, twos, fives, and eights, but now they're called the rejection types. Now, that doesn't sound good. You might be thinking, what? I'm a rejection type? I love people. Okay, hang on. Let's talk about this. All right, so the rejection this group experienced Somewhere in their two caregivers, protective and nurturing, there was some kind of rejection that went on, okay? There was some kind of rejection that causes these types to deflect their own needs by rejecting what they want, okay? So twos, fives, and eights tend to reject their own needs and deflect what they really want. They go through life expecting to be rejected, So they defend themselves, their posture is kind of set to defend themselves against whatever rejection might come their way, okay? Or against the rejection they might feel. They express, uh, they, I'm sorry, they repress, not express, they repress their own genuine needs slash vulnerabilities, eights. They use emotional stiff arm techniques to push away what they don't want or they don't want to be controlled by while simultaneously 
pulling toward themselves the kind of love they really do want. Essentially, these three types reject what they most want in relationships. Very sad. They must learn to be truthful about their own needs. Their willingness to have their needs met by others is the first step to their journey home. Okay, so let's talk about the twos first. Twos felt rejected because the nurturing love they offered their protective caregiver was not reciprocated. Okay, let me say that in simple terms. Two children may have gotten the message. And again, I want to be clear that your parents may or may not have intended this message. But it's the message we hear, the message we receive, the confirmation bias. Let's say this in a simple way. Twos, as children, may have felt like they really tried to love their dad. They really tried to love their protective caregiver. But for whatever reasons, that love was never really reciprocated back to them, back to the two. So the two really tried to give their attention, their time. Um, they tried to be pleasing to. They tried to make daddy the center of their world. But for whatever reasons, it just felt like dad was too busy for me or dad didn't really care or dad didn't really notice me or that protective figure really just didn't have the same attention given back to me, the two. Twos simply want to be loved for who they are, but they're fearful that they might not be. And if they were to have needs of their own and they were to voice those needs, they might be perceived as being selfish, yes, but also they might be rejected because if you have needs, what if the other person doesn't want to take the time to meet those needs? And that rejection of giving your needs to someone else and them not attending to those needs, oh, that would feel like terrible rejection. So it's better to just not mention what I need. It's better not to focus on what I need. Because if I did focus on what I need and I put it out there and then the other person didn't want to take the time or the attention to meet my needs, oh, that would feel very painful. That would feel like a rejection. Okay, so twos tend to repress their own needs because they're afraid that their own needs will be too demanding and will then lead others to reject them. So you can't know what I need. So twos can be a little bit guarded, just like fives and eights, because they're kind of fear of being exposed. Like I have needs and I need people to love me and I need people to care about me and, and I need people to help me. That can feel very exposing to a two who, you know, after all, is here for others, is here to serve other people. I'm the missionary. I'm here to serve all the orphan children. And it can be very humbling. Humility, very important for twos. Remember what their sin is. Humility can be very important for twos to learn to grasp that or to accept that. So relational security. You hear the guardedness in that? being guarded. Relational security means having as few needs as possible. Then maybe I won't be rejected. Uh, so relational security is all about avoiding rejection. Okay. Very interesting stuff. All right. Fives. Fives are also in the rejection group with twos and eights. 
fives rejected both the nurturing and protective caregivers, which they perceived as intrusive. So let me put that in simple terms, okay? Um, As children, fives may have felt like both mom and dad were kind of invasive and intrusive forces on them. Now, they could have been invasive and intrusive in a negative way, like yelling and screaming and, um, you know, just being bad role models. And so the five had to retreat away from that, all of that strife and all of that chaos. But their parents could have been intrusive in a more positive way of just trying to over attention, nurture and care and protect and put your helmet on, son. Oh, you need to go out. You're going to make sure you tie both your shoes. So the parents could have been intrusive in a very positive way, trying to be loving, trying to be careful uh, with their child and offer care and support. But whatever reason, the five perceived their parents, both of them, as being intrusive forces on their life. And so the five rejects mommy and daddy to sort of distance themselves away from those intrusive invasive forces and to learn to self nature or sorry self nurture and self protect um fives resist exposing there it is again guarded fives exist exposing their needs by protecting themselves with emotional distance Okay, so fives tend to be guarded people um, who don't want to be in touch with their own needs because if I have needs, then I have to allow those intrusive forces back into my life. I don't want to be intruded on. I don't want to be manipulated. I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to be coerced. So I need to retreat into the safe space, the layer, the laboratory, you know, the uh, the castle walls. I need to retreat and I will self-protect and I will self-nurture because mommy and daddy's nurturing and protection is too invasive into my space. And so fives reject that and they move away, okay, into self-protecting and self-nurturing. Okay, um, let's talk about the eight. The eight is also in the rejection group with twos and fives. Eights felt controlled by the nurturing love that was offered by their caregiver and then rejected it. So they began to over-identify with the protective caregiver and their energy. Okay, let me say that in simple words. As a child, the eight child felt like mommy was trying to be controlling. Mommy was giving orders. Mommy was giving demands. Mommy was saying what time bedtime was. Mommy was saying you have to eat your vegetables. Mommy was saying turn off the television. And that felt like somebody was trying to tell me what to do. And this is bull. This is not going to happen in my life. So the eight kind of pushes back against, rejects the nurturing caregiver who's giving all of these demands and orders and all of this. Again, was your mom overly demanding? Maybe or maybe not, but it's how you perceived it. It's your confirmation bias. You perceived mommy as though she's trying to control you, trying to manipulate you, or trying to uh, direct you to um, directly. 
So you began to shift the attention over to the protective caregiver and more identify with them. Identify like, I want to be like that. I want to be strong like dad is. Or I want that independent space like dad has. I want to be big and, and, and you know powerful like dad is. Or like the protective caregiver is. Because they have a fear of being controlled, eights refuse to open up their hearts. Now, I, I know this is your kind of blanket statements and you're as an eight reading or hearing this and you're like, I opened my heart? What are you talking about? Okay, first of all, let me say that this is information that I glean from others. And so your fight isn't with me. Let's just try to understand this and see if there might be some truth to this under the surface, okay? Because they have a natural fear of being controlled, eights, we might soften it by saying, have a tendency to sort of refuse to open up their hearts. Or they have a fear of opening up their hearts um, because... They kind of reject the possibility of needing anyone else. I'm strong. I'm powerful. I'm capable. I don't need other people. I'm strong and I and other people are going to try to control and other people are going to try to manipulate me. Eights may also resist facing their own pain and their fears and would rather focus on other people's pain and fears and fight for them than to be vulnerable about their own fears or their own, we could say, childhood-isms of insecurity or indecision or disappointment, all those things that make you feel like a helpless child. Nope, eights tend to suppress that vulnerable stuff while themselves being drawn to pure vulnerability. They're drawn to protect other people's fears and to fight for them, but they may resist sharing those things about themselves. So they tend to reject their own vulnerability. They do not allow themselves to want or to ask um, others to help them or to meet their needs or to take care of me. That can be something that eights tend to reject. Okay. All right. So those are the rejection types in this dominant attachment group or dominant effect group. Wow. I know these terms, they start to get a little bit too hard to keep in line. These rejection groups are also the same as the relationist groups in the harmony, uh, if you're looking at it from the harmony perspective. Okay, so let's stay with the dominant effect groups. All right, so let's talk about the next group, which are the attachment types. So the first group was the rejection group. This group is the attachment group, or the attachment types. Now, let me just, I've got this little voice in my head saying, what if people think he doesn't know what he's talking about? Uh, you know, that's always true. I'm, I'm always cognizant of the fact that I'm not an expert in this. I'm a student of this, trying to learn it, trying to understand it. And so if you're 10 years ahead of me in this and you think he doesn't really communicate this well, I'm trying. Okay, so there's my six wing showing is that what if people are thinking this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about? Mm, well... I just try and study and figure out and then post so that you guys don't have to do all the reading and all of that if you don't if you don't have time for it. So maybe I do, maybe I don't. I'm doing the best I can. All right, let's keep going. The attachment types, three, six, and nine, which are called in the harmony group, the pragmatist. In the dominant effect groups, they're called the the uh, the attachment types. Three, six, and nine. So this group holds on 
to the, the practical energies they find that support their own sense of self. In other words, one of their caregivers, or both, came alongside of them, helped them see how they fit in the world, and then they attached, over-attached to that other person, that nurturer, that protector, okay? So they desire to maintain a comfortable and stable relationship with people or the things that they identify with. They want to hold on to whatever works or is working for them in their life. They attach to their need for threes, recognition, sixes, this is a sign language, by the way, for six, sixes um, to external forces that provide them with safety and security, and nines, independence, or whatever will help them be autonomous or remain free from other people's um, over-involvement in their life. Okay, so they have a deep hunger for attachment that was met by their caregiver with either recognition, stability, or independence. So let's start with the three. The three attaches to the energy of the nurturing caregiver. In other words, mommy. Okay, the three attaches to the energy of the nurturing caregiver and subsequently becomes capable of nurturing themselves. All right, so let's put that in simple terms. The three has a strong bond with mom. Mom came alongside of them and praised them for who they were and what they were doing. And so they started to hear mom's voice in their head and they began to like feel more confident and bold as they kind of incorporated mom's praise into their life. All right. So the three attaches to the energy of the nurturing caregiver and sub subsequently becomes capable of nurturing themselves. The affection that they that they gave to their mom and received from their mom or their nurturing caregiver fuels their natural ability to self-nurture themselves. In other words, okay, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm all right. I, I, I attained this. I achieved this. I did a good job. They're proud of me. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. So they're nurturing. The focus is on, on the nurturing caregiver. The six attaches overly attaches to the energy of the protective caregiver and subsequently becomes capable of self-protection. In other words, as a child, in simple terms, the six attaches or aligns themselves with daddy. Daddy's strong. Daddy's big. Daddy's powerful. As long as I'm close to dad and as long as I relate well to dad, then I'll be safe and I'll be secure. If I become more like dad, then I would become safe myself and I'd be able to protect myself. And so they kind of like pull up alongside of the big guy, hold hands with him and then grow up next to him and try to become like him and try to have that same control of themselves and posturing of themselves that dad has. So I'll be safe in the world because I'm like dad. So they attach to the dad figure or the protective caregiver in their life. And then I'll be okay. All right. The nine attaches to the energy of both the nurturer and the protector in their life and subsequently becomes capable of self-nurturing and self-protection. Okay, so simple terms. The nine connects with both mom and dad. Both mom and dad, love them both, get along with both of them, and try to understand both sides and don't understand why they don't always get along, 
but I'm able to nurture myself and I'm able to protect myself because I have a good attachment with both mommy and daddy. Okay. Now, let's move to the the uh, frustration types. In the harmony groups, we called them the idealist. This could be better. This could work out, you know, and be a little bit improvement. Now, in the dominant um the dominant uh, effect groups, this group is called the frustration types. Ones, fours, and sevens. Frustration types. Not a very appealing title for us, but I do understand it and can appreciate it. Hopefully you can as well. Realize if you're in a relationship with a one, four, or seven, you're with a frustration type. Could be helpful for you to understand that. And give some compassion for it. This group, one, four, and seven, experiences constant angst about what could be it could be better it could be more fun it could be more exciting it could be cleaner it could people could have showed up early it could be more romantic it could be more stylized it could be more aesthetically pleasing but constant angst there's this sense that things aren't right in the world things could be improved on as children, they were frustrated that they were not given enough of what they sensed they needed. Boy, that sounds like a seven, doesn't it? Not given enough, looking for more, looking for satisfaction. Not giving enough of what they needed. Their comfort needs were not being sufficiently attended to by their caregivers. In other words, I have all these needs and my caregivers are letting me down. They're not attending to my needs as much as they should be. So these types, ones, fours, and sevens, they wanted more than what they were receiving from uh, their caregivers. They were hoping to receive more, so that left them frustrated. And to some degree, that frustration has never left us. Now, I'm not saying your parents weren't good parents. I'm saying this is the story you heard, okay? This is the message you received. It may not have been intentional, but this is what you received. I'm not trying to put parents down in any way. I know your parents were great. I love your parents. They're fantastic. I'm going to send them a card for Mother's Day and Father's Day. Okay. All right. So where am I at here? None of these types ever seem to be able to find what they're looking for. You know, that is such a helpful thought if you are one of these types to realize that about yourself. That no matter what I, no matter how good the experience is, I'm always able to think of how it could have been better. If I could relax that a little bit, I might realize that in many ways it's my own idealism that causes me unhappiness in life. It's not other people not living up to my idealistic standards, it's my own idealistic standards are too rigid. And I need to relax them a little bit and be more okay with the way things are. If I was more okay with the way things are, I could be what? More present to life. I'd be more mindful. If I could learn to slow down and have more gratitude. Okay, sermon over. All right, let's go back to the notes here. So none of these types ever seems able to find what they're looking for. I think about the song from U2. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So what do we know? He's probably a one, four, or a seven. Uh, I'm going to guess four. But okay. The group has, this group has a persistent irritation because the one, type one, has unrealistic expectations for themselves and others. In other words, way too high. It's not good to be good enough. You got to do it perfect. And so the ones beat themselves up 
and sometimes you know or it can be very negative in their view of other people because people aren't living up to their high idealistic standards okay so this group has a persistent irritation because type 4 they have intense introspection in their quest for authenticity in themselves and the world I'm going to leave that one alone for now. And type 7, persistent irritation because type 7 has a fear that bringing closure to an experience or an idea ultimately limits their freedom. In other words, if we make all of our plans and we nail it down, then uh, what if in the last minute I want to make it better? What if in the last minute we find out that there was a... The best taco place in America was right down the street and we made plans, but we, ah, I don't want the plans because the plans, I like dreams, but the plans are too rigid. They lock us in and then we might have to let something awesome go. And that would be sad. Okay, so the one seeks autonomy to be themselves, to be true to themselves, integrity. The four seeks validation and recognition. Do you love me? Do you care about me? Do I matter? And the seven seeks access to opportunities. And these types are constantly frustrated by their own idealism. The one is frustrated that the protective caregiver didn't safeguard them enough. And so they compensate by assuming a self-protective stance themselves. Okay, let's put that in, in simple terms. What is it saying? It's saying, as a child, the one could have been frustrated with daddy upset with daddy, disappointed with daddy because daddy didn't protect them. From who? Well, could have been the could have been other people in the family, bigger brothers or sisters who are annoying and antagonistic or a mom who's overbearing or intrusive. But what about even the the one's own self-criticism? Because ones can be very harsh with themselves. And they really needed daddy to step in, the protective figure to step in and do a little more refereeing and saying, honey, it's okay, you did your best, you know, don't beat yourself up. Or, hey, knock it off, kids, don't be so hard on your sister. Or um, whatever, that that one got the sense that the self-protective figure didn't provide enough care or enough referee or enough mitigation uh, to protect them in this life. So the one becomes a parent themselves in their own mind. The inner critic, the inner parent within them, they become like the protective figure themselves. Okay, because they're not doing their job, so I need to do this job for them. Okay, the four becomes frustrated with the nurturer and the protective caregiver, both mommy and daddy, uh, because they didn't give enough affectionate attention and maybe other things, um, acceptance, that might be important, acceptance, admiration, that could be important. So they compensate by assuming a self-protection and self-nurturing stance. Okay, so let's put this in simple terms. As a child, the four felt like both mommy and daddy didn't have time for me. They didn't really care about me. They weren't really on my team. They weren't really supportive of me. They didn't understand me. They didn't get me. They were too busy for me. I was an add-on. I was an appendage to the family. And mommy and daddy just couldn't be bothered with me. And so they didn't 
They didn't give me the attention I, I was seeking. I would do these wonderful creative things and they would just kind of blow them off as if they were passe, pedestrian, and mundane. And so the four retreats away trying to self-nurture and self-protect themselves. Okay, the seven is frustrated that the nurturing caregiver didn't nurture enough to satisfy them. Didn't provide enough uh, caregiving for them, affection, attention, gift-giving, entertaining, uh, play, uh, all kinds of attention that they didn't provide enough to meet and satisfy the need of the seven. So they compensate by assuming a self-nurturing stance uh, of avoiding pain and of taking care of their own needs. So let's put that in simple terms. As a child, the seven may have felt like mommy didn't have enough time to do all of the things with me that I wanted to do. She couldn't get, take me to the store today because she had appointments. She couldn't play with me outside and um, um, play with my toys and look at the rocks and look at the lizards because she had an important phone calls. And so I was going to have to venture out into the world on my own and take care of my own needs and meet my own needs because mommy really was just too busy to satisfy and meet all the needs that I had. And so I become a perpetual glutton uh, trying to meet my own needs. Okay, so I think that this is helpful in just giving us another layer of the onion in trying to understand a little bit more about our stance in this life and how we relate to others and how we relate to the world around us. Um, I don't know, you know, that this solves a lot of problems, but it does give us uh, some interesting things to think about. Again, I don't want to uh, persecute parents and say, you caused this. I don't think you caused your kid's Enneagram type. I think there are other forces and many forces and parents might be one of them, uh, but I don't think they're the only force in this. But I do think, you know, that if you had a child, uh, two children raised in the same environment, same family, even twins, even twins, and one of them was a nine and the other one was a seven, or one of them was a one and the other one was a three, and you had those two twins and you sat them down and talked about growing up in their home, they would have a very similar story, but they would have different stories because of our Enneagram type, we experience our environment differently. We're looking at life through a type, through a pair of lenses. And so our attention focuses on the things that confirm, you know, that that orientation or that type. Does it cause us to be that type? I think we could we could speculate, we could speculate all day about that. Um, or is it just how we see the world? Again, we could speculate. I think for sure it's how we see the world. Um, so I think this could be helpful in understanding a little bit more about ourselves, why we tend to get frustrated with life, um, how we can relate to life in a more positive way, and certainly how we can relate to others. 
in, in a more positive way. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me for this video. Blessings, and as always, be present to life. I'll see you next time.